0: Hi, welcome to Little Pieces Club Ministries podcast. My name is Chris Polod. I'm known as Mr. Chris to the kids of Little Pieces Club Ministries. I've been a pediatrician for over 15 years and worked at an academic institution, uh, which means I have a pretty deep foundation in science. I am a child of divorce who is now an author. We have a children's book out and more coming. And I created Little Pieces Club Ministries to um, to wrap around uh, the ideas uh, that I have as I work with uh, kids and families. And what we basically do is decode the Bible, the biblical design patterns that heal and prevent trauma. Jesus's story uh, wrapped into the ideas of the Good Shepherd and Tree of Life, help us process, grieve, forgive, and reintegrate our souls, both in solitude and community, all while we love God, self, and others, like the greatest commandments, or as we call them, the greatest blessings, suggest. You can connect with us on our website at www.littlepiecesclub.org, email at littlepiecesministries@gmail.com, at gmail.com, and follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, we do have a Facebook site, but I'm phasing that out. For those of you listening to the podcast, there is a companion YouTube video with all the visuals from today's episode. So today's episode is the TEDx talk that got away. Their uh, theme for this year was anomalous, and that is the ideas worth spreading. They were looking for anomalous ideas. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. This is episode 141, season two, episode two. So I recently applied to give a TEDx talk at Michigan State University. I made the first cut, so the panel of MSU students were at least intrigued by the idea that thousands of year old biblical design patterns heal trauma and always have. But ultimately, after a 15 minute interview, they decided this was not the year for this concept. Life is Torah, meaning, everything we experience can teach us and has value the preparation gave me a chance to refine this core lpc message further the ted guidelines strictly keep to an 18-minute presentation so with playing media at high speed i think this presentation will meet that criteria so i hope you enjoy what was to be little pieces club ministries tedx msu talk please feel free to like and share Tonight, we will be talking about an ancient culture that was unique and anomalous. It is one that still exists and is, and is a living example of an important trauma-informed concept. You will note that I will not mention names from this culture, and I do this for a reason. It will help you experience the culture rather than simply hear about it. I am challenging you just like its ancient teachers did. They often answered questions with questions and spoken puzzles. The ancients walked a lot and pondered deep questions that kept their minds busy. In our modern context, feel free to grab your favorite tea, coffee, or latte, and take a walk to meditate on some of the concepts and questions you're about to hear. Feel free to reach out to tell me what you discover, but fair warning, I might ask you more questions. Alright, let's go. Trauma and adversity and the effects that reach into adulthood are well known thanks to modern scientific pioneers like Anda. Felitti, Nadine Burke-Harris, and Vessel van der Kolk, just to name a few of the many. Here are their faces. And thanks to many more efforts, we now have words to describe and study the awful conditions we experience growing up, called adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. ACEs are unique to each person, like snowflakes. My ACE was divorce and ongoing relational toxicity, which flowed into my adult marriage and parenting. I experienced what Judith Wallerstein, a pioneer in divorce research, coined the sleeper effect. All my fears suddenly surfaced when my girlfriend and I decided to commit to a future together. You see, I made what I call the divorced kids promise 15 years before, but now I think of it as the adversity promise. I, along with other kids, vowed to never let my children go through what I did. But deep down, I knew I had no idea what to do and my nervous system literally freaked out. Thankfully, I have healed and I am happily married now for 25 years. To get here, I've listened to many amazing people and the culture we will focus on tonight. Listening is one of our main themes, so let's get started. So I'm bringing together a science with the scholarship of ancient texts. I will be careful to not use church doctrine. Ancient text scholarship uses rigorous process and debate just like disciplines of science. It is helping us strip back layers of misunderstanding, misinterpretation, corruption, and hypocrisy, just like restoring a finely crafted yet weathered and overpainted antique rocking chair. We will be meeting the texts where they were created while we look through the lens of ace science and treatment. Like traumatized brains, let's start the journey in our left brains with some data. Anda and Felidi discovered that 70% of privileged, that is, white, college-educated people, have at least one seriously adverse experience. But when you include more relational trauma and chronic toxicity, that number grows. But this means, for the non-privileged, that their rates are higher. Dr. Burke-Harris hoped that knowledge of trauma would connect us as a shared experience, but there was a problem. Trauma causes disintegration in solitude and community. Instead of our brains functioning like well-tuned orchestras, they play music in an uncoordinated fashion, which can drive people away. What's worse, depending upon the trauma, even a smiling, warm individual may be triggering. How? Dr. Vanderkolk reminds us that an abuser may have smiled and been sweet before assaulting a victim, thus making them fear smiling people. Next, we consider attachment. Secure attachment is our ability to connect to others in a safe, win-win fashion. When we are disintegrated, we are insecure and will isolate ourselves. It's hard to think of a time when people isolate themselves in this modern world, right? It's sad. We won't connect even if we have a lot in common. We are too afraid that we will be hurt or we are afraid that we will hurt others. This fear is shame. So what do we do? The good news is attachment is flexible and we can learn to attach more securely. We get to choose even when we are ashamed. We can stand at the fork in the road between curiosity and judgment. One integrates and one disintegrates. But what about conflict? Well, many conflicts are actually like this picture. So this is the same data or lines on a page, but you can get completely different interpretations. At first glance, who sees the young woman? And then, who sees the old? What will judgment give us if we are in a conversation about this? Will you fight to be heard so that you are right? Abraham Lincoln had another way. I don't like that man, he would say. I must get to know him better. He would say choosing curiosity was better. Who then would be curious and courageous enough to listen to why someone sees the same data differently? When, in our modern context, might this be valuable? Well, let's take a look at a couple of pictures. So with both political divisions, gender divisions, abortion divisions, and even racial divisions, we all are looking at the same facts on the page, but we all see them a little bit differently. And so therefore, we stand in argument. But who will be curious enough to figure out how the other person is seeing a picture and then be able to consider their own? So, we've established that listening with a curious spirit is important. But who or what do we listen to? Why don't we listen to those who have been successful? Science calls success resilience. Do you know anyone who is resilient? What if there was an anomalous culture who has roots four to 5,000 years in the past and still survives today? Is there wisdom there to be mined and meditated on? But are they an old woman or a young woman or both? So today... We're trying to figure out how this culture is anomalous, so we mainly turn to the work of a crowdfunded nonprofit founded by Dr. Tim Mackey and John Collins. They represent a highly accessible tip of the spear of modern scholarship of ancient texts. They're not the only scholars, but they do a great job of bringing that to the common person. They carefully summarize the work of others and make materials freely available through the cloud. They and others help us see that this ancient culture produced books of poetry, narrative, metaphor, and repeated design patterns which highlight important themes. The ancient authors developed these themes over millennia, and I mentioned the left brain earlier, so let's invite the right brain into the talk. To make a point about truth and poetry, which is a massive part of the ancient texts, we look at this question. So what you're looking at is my daughter. She is both a grizzly bear and a teddy bear. So I hope you can see that even though she really isn't a grizzly bear or teddy bear, that we have just communicated a truth about her. And so that we can see that poetry communicates efficiently truths. So further, the body of intricate, intentional, complex poetry and narrative from our anomalous culture curiously contains details of the culture's ineptitude and distinct ability to cause, you guessed it, trauma. We also see this culture fought bravely sometimes and won, but also lost, a lot. It experienced cultural exile, and yet they survived. Many ancients leave out their embarrassing details, but this one didn't. Why might this help resilience? If your history prepares you for failure, you have a better chance of survival. There's one more scholar to meet, but there are so many doing excellent work. This is Kenneth Bailey. His deep analysis of Middle Eastern thought is coming up. So how do you heal trauma? I could bore you with a talk about telomerase and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR, and internal family systems therapy, or IFST, but others have already done that. I mean to focus us on the idea that ancient poetry builds individual and cultural resilience. It builds us in solitude so that we can connect in community. Is this idea all that new? No. Again, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of The Body Keeps the Score, theorizes that ancient Greek tragedies helped soldiers reintegrate after war. Reintegrate. There is that word again. And second, that trauma impacts the brain far beneath the centers that help us form words, meaning that we need nonverbal metaphor, narrative, and mental and emotional imagery along with secure attachment to heal. The first thing that made this culture anomalous was its origin story. There were some themes that the surrounding cultures would have recognized. So the story met outsiders, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, where they were, but then led them, like a shepherd, to a different spin. One where a unique creative force existed apart from the material world and didn't fear the chaos, but used it instead as a creative canvas. It was a calming and reassuring story compared to the conflict that the others invoked. The main character of the epic story was quite unique as well. Consider attachment as we talk about him. He is the human being all the stories point towards. He called himself the Good Shepherd and the Tree of Life. But most of us in the West do not live and breathe this imagery, so many levels escape us. But those who understand Middle East context experience it differently. For Westerners to grasp what a good shepherd is, think back to a special or amazing teacher. Did they express a deep knowing of you? Did they challenge you to reach your potential? Did they leave a mark on your heart? Were they one of the people who made a difference in your life? Science tells us that these special people are instrumental in overcoming adversity. The rich imagery of the good shepherd was explored by Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey, who you saw the picture of earlier. Here we just present a few characteristics of such a shepherd. They pursue lost sheep at great personal cost, and they have a voice the sheep know and follow. They lay down their lives to protect the sheep and lead them courageously through dark valleys that are reminders of death and chaos. Now, would you want to attach to this type of shepherd? Regarding the tree of life, we see this design pattern span from the first book to the last of our ancient texts. Humans are invited to become trees of life when they meditate on the text day and night. Nature, or the created world, teaches us about trees. Roots in solitude grow deeper and deeper, and they find living water. While this is playing out below the soil, unseen to others, trunks grow in full view of community. As trees age, they become more beautiful and draw people to them, especially when they flower and produce fruit that nourishes and heals. They are a living metaphor for our healing journey. What then do trees need to grow? Sunlight, water, and soil. Our main character also describes himself as light and living water and a seed. But what about the soil? In fact, the first human's name is a word play on the phrase dirt creature. It is why dirt in the garden is also called humus. The message from the Creator to a human feeling the shame of trauma from this wordplay and metaphor is, You may see yourself as no better than dirt, but I formed you from the dirt and added my living water to make clay and shaped you into my image and breathed into you my spirit so that we can love each other and work in the garden together. So how might a message like this influence insecure attachment? Remember the message is thousands of years old and we've just been able to uncover it knowing the linguistics and culture of our ancient anomalous culture. But what about women? The first woman's name means life. She was not formed from dirt. She was formed last in the story from another human. So what's happening here? Later we hear in the ancient text that the first will be last and the last will be first. This is clever wordplay. What does this say about her value? Did humanity have life without her? the authors meant to inspire us to meditate on these questions. So with these three original characters the creator, the dirt creature, and life, we see a picture in the Garden of Integration. The creator, created, male and female. Reverend Bailey helps us process our modern gender questions further, letting us know that spirit in the Middle Eastern context implies the feminine. So in this culture's thinking, The three-in-one creative force that humanity reflects contains parent-child and male-female concepts. Further, since the Good Shepherd prepares a feast in the Middle East, that too calls into mind the feminine. Psychologists tell us today that surveys indicate even the most masculine individuals have feminine thoughts and feelings, and vice versa. How else are we able to have conversations if we don't have the capacity to understand and think like one another? But men commonly dominate women all over the earth, right? The ideal communicated by the ancient authors has always been a loving co-equality between the genders and ethnicities. This is a challenge. We can grieve the reality born of selfish human desires and do better. Is there anything else about women? Here's my favorite. In the time of the Babylonian exile, there was an orphaned woman who became a queen. Unlike the first couple, she listened when her uncle, the male, challenged her. She had the power to command her entire culture. She put herself in harm's way and expertly navigated the political system, saving her people from extinction, just like a good shepherd would. One of the feasts celebrated by our ancient anomalous culture commemorates this event. It's a tantalizing hint of the historical relevance. The curious thing about this story is that the creator was never named, probably because of the rules of exile. So leaving gender now, let's focus on another anomalous practice, and that is the complete ceasing of work and delighting in the Creator's gift. What does this have to do with trauma? Imagine you were mistreated and are ashamed, but once a week you must intentionally stop the dehumanizing work and stress of life and the world, including your psychological worrying and feelings of stress. During this time you are expected to receive and experience joy in the form of gifts from your Creator. This directly messes with our shame. Each and every week we must confront the stark reality that the Creator vehemently refuses to agree with our conclusion that we are without value and perhaps dangerous. An amazing affirmation for a dark and desperate soul to receive every week. It is hard to imagine holding on to shame for very long. At the community level Our culture that we're talking about tonight embraced justice, or mishpat, much like our modern concept. Linked closely to this is anah, or submission. Picture being on your knees, bowing your head before a soldier who has just conquered you, but yet you freely desire to serve them. So when I have been saying listen, it is with anah in mind. This is the ego-sacrificing mindset our ancient people cultivated toward those in society who had no power the orphans, widows, and foreigners. They had no power to cancel. Mishpat, or justice, was to submit to them and to care for them. Today, we echo this with win-win thinking. But the question to us is, how do we know what is a win to someone else? Anna helps. So here we are, beginning to saturate our brains and souls with just a few of the stories, metaphors, and ethics this ancient culture has to offer. But there is a stumbling block. How can all of this healing imagery coexist with all the adversity and trauma we see around us? In 3,000 years, do we really think that we are the first to ask this question? Remember in picture our old and young woman. If you hold both of these images in mind, you are beginning to think like these quote-unquote primitives and are ready to listen to the answer. Can you use anah yet? Can you hold suffering and blessing in the same hand? The ancient authors were brutally honest about suffering. Three main characters in the text suffered terribly unfair treatment. The first was a blameless rich man who lost his wealth, his family, and his health. The next was an impetuous boy loved by his dad, but hated by his siblings and sold into slavery. He was thrown into prison in a foreign land for a crime he didn't commit. And finally we come to a son, a good shepherd, who laid down his life willingly for his sheep. For his trouble, he was beaten and killed in the most public and shameful way possible. Yet each one of these humans made a choice, a choice to be curious about how these events played out in the creator's plan. Each eventually blessed the community in countless ways. Their suffering produced blessing. The old woman gave way to the young woman. One could not have happened without the other. So I hope I can share with you one last concept, their most important message. While most Westerners think they were given rules, and that is commandments, this was not exactly correct. The word that underlies commandment is mitzvah, or blessing. So to them, they were given knowledge about living in harmony with each other, the Creator, and the land. This is what's called shalom. They were not told what they had to do, but what blesses them in solitude and community the most, They bless and are blessed most when they love the Creator and others in the same way they love themselves. How did they define love? First and foremost, it is patient and kind, just like the Good Shepherd demonstrates. How does this impact attachment, do we think? So here we are, scraping off layers of dust and paint from an old and dirty rocking chair. Initially, not much at all for the eye to see. Most might even pass it by these days. Hopefully, though, you are starting to come closer and finding the intricate detail and iridescence of the fine wood grain as it's exposed. Who would have guessed such deliberate craftsmanship existed below the grime? In around 18 minutes, we have just started the healing and restoration project. Wouldn't it be a travesty if this art disappeared or was deemed irrelevant? How healthy could we be if our collective souls became saturated by these intentional metaphors, narratives, design patterns, and poetry? Looking at great works of art leads us to ponder about the artists. They leave behind their presence. The more we admire their craftsmanship, the fine wood grain, the care in carving, the fit of the chair, the mind of the artist also begins to saturate hurting souls with healing. Thank you all for listening, and I can't wait to hear who figures out the puzzle. Why did I leave out the names of our characters? Need a hint? One of the ancient texts personifies wisdom as a woman. Why don't you ask one? So as I always do with LPC episodes, I'll pray this one to a close. Thank you for listening to this TEDx talk that almost was. Dear Heavenly Father, bless this idea. Help those in this culture who are lost in creating their own truth to hear your voice. May they know your voice and trust that they can follow without fear. May your message reach them where they are and melt the shame that isolates them so that they truly know your Good Shepherd heart for them for, them for the first time. Then they may know and love themselves and finally love others well. May they see their journey as one and the same as a tree of life. May Jesus be the seed and the soil of their heart and with his light and water. May it sprout, struggle, and grow. May they weather many storms and thrive through the adversity, bursting forth with color and healing fruit. Finally, Lord, bless us with the patience to wait on this process, for you have the ultimate wisdom, and we shall bow before your love and thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are Little Pieces Club Ministries, and thank you for spending time with us.